What do you think spies are? Priests, saints, and masters? They're a squalid procession of vain fools. Traitors too, yes. Pansies, sadists, and drunkards. People who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives. This is Genre. We're reading genre classics, pulp gold, and we watch the occasional blockbuster. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connection between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. Right now we are reading spy novels with The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John McCarthy. And this week, we have a big announcement. We are launching a brand new Patreon. Subscribing gives you access to our post-episode episode, where we go off the record and on what we really think about the books. Check the link in the description to learn more. I'm Bob. Last week, reading Lust Caution, I was interested in performing a romance, and it's also kind of a spy book. In Wang Jiazhi, we had a main character who needed to keep up the appearance of romance. She needed to keep it look like it was happening. And we found that a key moment for her, Zach identified this, that she was, when she accepted the role as reality, she found that she really was in love. And that kind of broke the spell of the performance. And this week with our main character, Alec Lemus, I'm interested in his performance as a spy. I want to ask, who is the real Alec Lemus? Is there a real Alec Lemus? And can he even know? I'm John. I'm interested in how John Lacari is almost given this realist critique of spy books in this one, I think, on the basis of his own experience in the a Secret Service. And I think just the, it's very interesting. I look at the, the sort of the, the philosophies as well of, of the two sides that the, you know, the side in East Germany, the communist side, is very much driven by this, this big ideal of peace and the collectivity at all costs and, you know, the expense of the individual, but ultimately this pursuit for peace, world peace and equality, but, you know, where mind work is the same value as peace work. So they're driven by all these big ideals. It's a very interesting conversation where they're talking about which of these ideals uh, or what ideals the West has. I feel, feel, I think it's feed lasts. Lemus, the main character, what is the ideal that is that we don't have ideals? He almost reminds, yeah. So that's kind of why I'm interested in it. I want to talk a bit more about that. I'm Zach. I'm interested in how these characters each justify their roles and their actions on this like personal level. You know, whether we're talking about the self-justification of torture, their their ideology, or just falling in love with a drunken lout at a psychic library. I think he's literally describes the drunken lout. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I couldn't remember how he described him, but I was like, how do you sum up Linus's character in just like one one pithy phrase and it's really he's really just a drunken lout oh yeah well i found one here it's uh in the full view of his colleagues he was transformed from a man honorably put aside to a resentful drunken wreck and all within a few months yeah <laughs> yeah i think that really is the, the life of lemus yeah as it's in it as it appeared apparently john Licari, like when he how he got inspired for him he saw a guy in a trench coat show up to a bar did you guys read this yeah yeah i read that yeah as well no i didn't i didn't tell me about it he shows up to a bar, like at the airport, and he just orders a beer. And then he's like, well, how much is it? And they tell him, and he just starts getting out different kinds of currencies because he has no idea where he is. He just tries That's to pay funny. with like, yeah. They call him the well, archetypal secret agent figure. Exhausted, 
barely knows what countries he's in and down on his luck. So, so how, how do we place this book? This, this was published in 1963. I think that for while we've talked about really early examples of the spy novel, such as 49 Steps, John Buchanan, we've read yeah. two James Bond books. Steps. 39 Steps, 39 Steps, thank you. You're bucking me. Inflation. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you read Guys with the Quiet American. Graham Greene, Graham for Green. sure. And yeah, Our yeah. Man in Havana. Like, we've read Our Man in Havana, which is a like, really funny comedic take also by Graham Greene. That was uh, great. A spy, no, with, with a spy who didn't really uh, realize he was a spy. And the arsonist daughter. Oh, yeah, of course. That's a funny book. So, yeah, I think we've had some great spinals so far. I think we've also read a previous on the car, as we mentioned. Yeah. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, an incredible book. Such a good book. Just a great, fun book. Like, the pacing is great. You know, it's done overstates, outstates welcome, but it stays real, interesting the whole time. So, great, great book. I read a really interesting review, like a customer review. I wouldn't call this like a review review. I'd call this a one-star audible review where <laughs> someone was like, this whole book was just nine hours of conversation. Writing professors yes. always say, show, don't tell. And this book is why. This book is just tell, start to finish. I thought that was a really interesting take. So like compared to like a James Bond, you know, we've read a couple of James Bond novels now and presumably will again soon in the future that james bond books are a lot of show they're a lot of boom they're a lot of bang in all senses of the word this is numerous scenes of planning and in, in espionage activity falling in love being initiated into a you know hostile territory being tortured and interrogated for interrogations yeah interrogations what do you guys make of that I've been watching Game of Thrones recently, actually, and I'm I'm a weird guy, so I've never seen Game of Thrones in my life. So, <laughs> so I'm watching Game of Thrones for the first time in 2023 because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, it's a it's a good guy to be. I think what I love about like, the show is that every single scene is you know a power struggle. It's it's mostly just people talking. Like Game of Thrones is literally usually just two people talking every single scene. And it's just got a very similar vibe where I, I, it's just talk, people talking every scene. But there's a real negotiation of power going on in all the scenes. And yes. there's very much interesting of like what information is true and what is false, what's being withheld and what's being shown. And what it is showing is concealing something else, you know. So I think because there's such there's so much at stake in these conversations, I think it works. Yes. I think this the Game of Thrones is very similar. There's so much at stake in every single conversation that even though they're just talking, it feels like there's action. So I, I, f- I feel like it's almost my, my response to what you're saying is it feels almost like an unfair accusations I do, I, do, I do think there's action in the conversation that is you know sufficiently showing rather than telling but i agree that it's probably more like conversational than a james bond where it's much more action and there are action scenes in this there are like the last scene on the wall for example is, is a great action scene so there, is, yeah. there are scenes set pieces of, of drama as well so i, I yeah I, I guess my response to that one style review is that it's an unfair assessment i think they weren't listening close enough so, so this book, I think, does have those power struggles that you identified as happening in Game of Thrones. But I also think that from the reader's perspective, there's an element of revelation that's happening in this story. Like the reader wants to know, like presumably the reader is not a spy. I think yeah. we can safely presume that 
there is some indication that John Lacare has previous experience in the intelligence community. He literally was a spy. Yeah. So, so I sometimes I get the feeling that John Lacare is trying to humanize yes. the, the profession, trying to make it Very relatable so. or convey something of his experience. When they argue about ideology, for example, I get the feeling that this is Lacare trying to share something with the reader and the reader presumably is hungry for this kind of information uh here's a good good quote when lemus and control are talking control says i want you to stay out in the cold a little longer lemus said nothing so control went on the ethic of our work as i understand it is based on a single assumption that is we are never going to be aggressors do you think that's fair and then you know skip forward a little bit thus we do disagreeable things but we are defensive. That, I think, is still fair. We do disagreeable things so that ordinary people here and elsewhere can sleep safely in their beds at night. Is that too romantic? Yeah. Of course, we occasionally do very wicked things. And then it says he grins. Yeah. I think those are the kind of conversations that people are hungry to read. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like real conversations. Of the, yeah, I think you're right. Humanizing the, the secret service in a way humanizing these people who get heroized, heroized, heroinized, hero- made into heroes in <laughs> sort of James Bond story. Surely yeah. must be a verb for that. But I think the best conversation, speaking of being romantic, is, uh, where is it now, when he's having the conversation with his, his love interest, Liz Gold, which is sort of an echo of James Bond. Now, I do you think there's a lot of parallels with James Bond that we should talk about that for show sure. like the direct? But I think the funniest line is where she says, like, do you love me? And he says, I don't believe in fairy tales in response. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. a great line. To me, that feels like an Ian Fleming James Bond line rather um, than yeah. like a film James Bond line in the sense of like, in the film, yeah. I get the sense that though the the Bond girls aren't particularly concerned about love themselves yeah. like James Bond. But I think that maybe more so in the book, Fleming tries to put Bond in these positions and conversations where he can kind of flout and show off his his hard, grim attitude. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of parallels in the characters as well. Like L- Lemus is very similar to James Bond in a way. He's a man of action. He's not a man of you know all this talking about life, as he says to Liz Gold. Yeah, he seems to be surrounded by these sort of intellectuals and idealists who all want to talk in in larger terms. I I'd, I think it's all very funny because yeah, it's, it's there's so much going on here that does feel like you say like just humanizing this genre. And also, it feels like the John Lacare is like a dangerous sort of psychoanalyzer using this book to whilst write about his own experience as a spy. I think being rep, you know, really represent his experience, like in the epilogue to the book or the afterwards of the book, sorry, like Lacare talks about how when he wrote this book, he was depressed, sick of his job in civil service and drinking a lot of alcohol. He sounds very, very similar to Lemus. Mm-hmm. And yet Lemus is this, this man of action, this sort of like just meat, just pure action, almost like a Mike Hammer type figure in a way, but a bit more sort of savvy and a bit more calm and less, you know, but, but ultimately a sort of a drunk, sort of like driven guy, but he's living this sort of grimy life and he's just not interested in big ideas at all, whereas Lacare obviously was interested in these big ideas because he wrote about them. So I think it's yeah. sort of an interesting, you know, and things of also Lemus in the book as well has a similar sort of ambiguity where you're not sure what's real and what's fake in terms of like yeah. his alcoholism as well. So I think it's a very interesting book. Like, it's the kind of book I enjoy. Lots of ambiguities and lots of sort of uh, apparent paradoxes in it. Let's pull on that Mike Hammer thread a little bit because so Mike Hammer, notorious 
hard-boiled detective, hard-drinking, hard-fighting, hard-loving. He, yeah. I, I think that with Mike Hamill, well, he does have a heart. He does have a heart. He does have a heart. Yeah, but I think he's characterized too. by his lack of control over those those elements that make him a, a good hard-boiled detective. Like, I think in the last book we read, it featured a scene where he just drank a lot of beer and then passed out in a closet at a party. You know yeah. what I mean? Or like, uh, he'll be in a bar and someone will look at him funny and will bash their head against the counter and walk away. You know, just like random acts of either violence or intoxication that he is in no way in control of. Lemus here, every act of intoxication and every act of violence is largely calculated. Well, it's all a show. It is so, And I guess we haven't really talked too much about the plot. And I think it might be, you know, presumably... If you're listening to this, yeah. you already read the book, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But it's you know it's revealed that everything he's he's done is for the sake of you know getting in and kind of setting up this this torturer Fiedler. So a lot of his actions are meant to look out of control, but they're all calculated. He gets drunk so that for the people yes. observing him and watching him, he appears to be a drunk. He gets in a fight so that to the people observing him and watching him, he appears to be out of control. Yeah. He really commits to having his whole life fall apart for yeah. the uh, for the assignment. One last assignment before he gets his proper pension check. And that's just another aspect of the reality of it as well. The only reason he has to do this job is because he had interrupted service. Now his pension has been affected. So he needs some money or else he is actually going to you know, be living on a preposterously low amount of money a, a year. So, does, yeah, there's kind of a grim altitude there, isn't there? I like, too, he doesn't even know the full extent of the job that he's getting into. He doesn't realize that he's setting up Fiedler until the end of the trial. He does think it's Boont the whole time. Then he suddenly realizes at the end, he tells us, that's when he knows Liz was calculated, or to what degree she was calculated. So this was a question I had, because yeah. I couldn't tell if he, if if the, the Fiedler Boont switch then, up was known by him the entire time or whether he learns it at the end because yeah i'm not sure either and, and it makes it really like in terms of like a, a narrative sense it makes it really how would i put this challenging or maybe even confusing because we're given his first person perspective but his first person perspective is acting along presumably if you have the yeah. interior monologue of someone you know they wouldn't be reacting naturally to all of these things that they know they're, you know, you know, not only setting up this person, but setting up this other person. Well, I think it's like, he's always talking about how you only ever know parts of the story. Yeah. Any agent only ever knows their own part of this tale. Very few people, other than maybe Control, who does feature in this book, know about the full plot. So mm-hmm. I think probably, he probably wouldn't know about it because he doesn't seem to know about many of the aspects. He knows what he needs to do and his job, but he doesn't know beyond what he can figure out for himself what's going on in the larger scale. Yeah. So I would imagine he doesn't know. And even that's unclear too. Some of the stuff he pretends not to know, like the control teller. Yeah, control tells him, once you get there, give them all the information they ask for. Make them think you're really telling them everything that you know. He does that and we are getting that impression, but it just layers and layers and layers come off of Lemus throughout the book. I think that's just the, is that just the lifestyle of being a spy? Yeah. Become like that? He says that at one point, too. He says, like, well, eventually you have to really believe you are the drunk. You mentioned earlier, like, acting as the drunk. Yeah. But he also starts to have a Method problem actor. where he, 
He's a method actor to the point where, what's that story of old, what's his name, when he started playing Hamlet? Uh, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis was such a method actor that when his father died, he went up to play Hamlet and he'd gotten so into it that he just broke down on stage and they had to cancel the whole production for the rest of the season because he Dope. believed he was Hamlet almost. National treasure, Daniel Day-Lewis. At the end of chapter 23, it says, and suddenly... With the terrible clarity of a man too long deceived, Lemus understood the whole ghastly trick. That's when he realizes, oh, I am here to get Fiedler, and that Munt is our guy. So I don't think he knows until then. Sorry, I got distracted, because that would be a great movie. Kind of like yeah. Black Swan. You know, it's not sure which one he is. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis descending into, into madness, playing Hamlet. That would be a great movie. <laughs> but who could possibly play Daniel Day-Lewis? That's, maybe, maybe he should act as himself. Well, I'm waiting for Daniel Day-Lewis to sign on for the film adaptation of Spy Who Came In From The Gold. I think that would be <laughs> masterfully yes. played. Yeah, he would be great as Lemus. But I think that's the question, though, isn't it? Like, to what extent is he really an alcoholic even, you know? I think he said he already, like, he says to control at the beginning of the book. Like, you know, he did already, like, sort of drink <laughs> more than most. Like, control explicitly asks him when he's almost, like, auditioning him for the role. So I think he's been chosen because he already sort of has this lifestyle going on already. But he really does let his his, his life go to, to pot. Like, yeah. it, it made me feel, feel like it's the opposite of James Bond. Like, James Bond has to go to yeah. some exotic place. In a, they'll tailor some nice suits for him. He'll go there with a wad of cash and a bunch of clothes, all the right clothes to the occasion. And just literally <laughs> going out for drinks with people. They'll be going out on adventures. Whereas Lemus is like, right, your assignment is you've got to live by yourself in one room apartment and you let your life turn to shit. <laughs> You have to really yeah. live it. It's really not a good deal. And all of it because of this broken service that means his pension is, is rubbish. It's, it's quite a depressing story, really. And he's quite a depressing character. But to what extent is it real, do you guys think? At one point he talks about this, about the being a drunk and everything else. He says they are all extensions of what his personality could be. Like the sh- he shuffles his it- feet at different points to like really look like a drunk who doesn't care at all. And all of his responses are like, fuck the world, I don't care. He is going way beyond his normal self. He's like like a wrestler, you know, like WWE wrestler. The Rock talks about you just be yourself, but turn it up as loud as you possibly can. Every aspect of yourself. Yeah. I think he is chosen because he has the ability to be this down and out character. He, It's potentially yeah. him. And they say, okay, go He's for it. He's almost been waiting for that excuse to be down and out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of like a thing I hear about creative writing too. And I wonder if John okay. McCarry would, would agree with this. Like, you don't write characters that you don't fundamentally understand. Even if you have a book full of distinct, you know, characters, ideally you would want each of them to be, in some sense, an aspect of your personality that you know intimately, right. but you just turn it up to 11 and kind of give it a, a life of its own. I don't remember yeah. who said this. I don't remember where I heard this idea, but I, yeah. I, I do think it's like the a rock. good one. And <laughs> yeah. Creative uh, writing master, The Rock. Those storylines <laughs> in the nineties. Oh my God, Dostoevsky of our time. <laughs> I, I I do agree though. I think he is very much like mythology, not, not mythologizing his life, but just rendering his life. It, you can see it's coming directly from his life, really, which are just refracted versions of his life almost. And I think because you see so much of like his, his like in his account of his own book at the end in the afterword, he this is what he says. It's like this is ultimately the outcome of my life. Uh, where I was inspired but not happy in the service, marriage is falling apart, alcoholism. Like, so I'm just going to write myself turn up to eleven almost. It is. It's, it feels like what he's saying in the afterward. 
Yeah. So it's, it's quite interesting that that's the case. And I think there are other books he does that as well. He's got a book called Perfect Spy, which is explicitly mm. off. Well, not explicitly, but very, very closely autobiographical. Um, but, you know, I guess it's just interesting to know how it's connected with his world, and I think. But it does feel like an almost bitter book at times. You know, it's, it's bitter about the spy genre. It's bitter about the civil service. It's bitter about the Cold War. It's, it's a very bitter book, I think. And when he writes about it, he also talks about how he wrote it in five weeks and he described himself, John Lucari, he described himself being so sucked up by this book that he would like park his yeah. car and just put his paper on the steering wheel and write, you know, like his history, yeah. basically. And there's a quote to back up what you're saying, John, where he says, perhaps some of the solitude and bitterness found its way into Alec Lemus, you know, talking about his own life because he says yeah. it was in the extremes of loneliness and personal confusion. He says he wanted to be in love, but his past his own inwardness yeah. made that impossible. He talks about yes. being a spy. You can never yes. share things with your family. You can't share different things that you yeah. should with people. You should be able to tell about your own interiority or your own life. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's interesting like, as trivia, but it's mm. also interesting because I think that provides us with a lot of very, a very clear idea of what like, this book's trying to say yeah. as well. And so you can based on his position in in that like you know how he responded was responding to politics in his day responding to the ideas in his day and the dominance of you know regimes almost that he was surrounded by so he's very interested in those i think and you know it's a very clear clear idea of communism uh you know the the you know history is it's the sort of thing like uh, there's a very funny quote where he he ultimately in his down and out life ends up working at the psychic library where he Underneath this, this horrendous like library manager, Miss Crail, who absolutely hates his guts, and he's uh, Miss Crail, and and he's absolutely gutted. He has to work for a woman as well. He's like, God forbid, I've got to work for women now in the psychic library. But he does end up like falling in love and having an affair with this young communist who also works at the library called Liz Gold, and she ultimately is his, you know, part of the plot. Almost he 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 says, you know, don't involve the girl, don't involve the girl. But she gets involved anyway, of course. Um, but he's having a conversation with her, and she's talk- they're talking about like, "What do you believe in?" And that's a big question in the book. Like, what do you believe in? Like at one point, everybody's yeah. coming a conversation. I think with Fiedler, you know, he calls him a Christian. She's, "I'm not a Christian." They say, "Well, what do you believe in?" Then they believe in anything. And he's having this same conversation with Liz Goals, and she says, "I don't believe in God." And he says, "Then what do you believe in?" History. He looked at her, her in astonishment for a moment, then laughed. "Oh, Liz. Oh, no." You're not a bloody communist. She nodded, blushing like a small girl at his laughter, angry and relieved that he didn't care. She made him stay that night and they became lovers. <laughs> so, you know, it's very interesting what he's saying here about Lemus. It's almost like he's not really that bothered about ideology. He's not, but he doesn't have an ideology of his own. He's kind of a non-ideologue almost yeah. in his, his nature. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I read the presentation of Liz. I mean, I think, I think what you're saying about him and her, their relationship is is accurate. But I did read the presentation of her slightly differently because I think the role that Liz Gold as communist plays in comparison to someone like Fiedler or even Munt is very, very different. And I think John Lucari is actually trying to make a point, a political point about how he views the kind of like Western communist. Because the presentation yes. of Munt is as pure bureaucrat torture. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a spectrum here. Munt also on the kind of a Nazi. All well, yeah. yeah. So so bureaucrat 
but also like he's only a communist because that's that where he that's where he is. So he's a communist now, but only by happenstance because the Nazis lost. Fiedler appears to be a true believer, Wait. but also a person who views the the ends as justifying the means. So so Fiedler seems to actually be a you know died in the wool communist, but it's like political communist tied to the the aims of the state, not like a global idealism towards you know work or whatever. Liz Gold doesn't seem to actually connect the idea that the communist party that she you know is affiliated with is directly controlled by the you know an outside political organization you know she talks about things like oh they're they're calling each other comrade is so distasteful it has this military ring to it she views her communist beliefs as being more in the line of like oh feed the homeless care for the workers you know it's all the the rhetoric that she buys into but she doesn't buy into the hard-nosed politicking and i yeah I think that Lacari is trying to paint the, you know, the Western card-carrying communist is hopelessly naive about yeah. what their real position in global politics is. Yeah, yeah, and they've got like seven people who turn up to their uh, their nights or whatever, and they yeah try and sell copies of the com- you know, communist magazines on the streets, but nobody buys them, so they just end up buying them all themselves, then forgetting that they've done so, and then reporting to yeah the, their superiors that they sold eighteen copies of you know Socialist Weekly or whatever, when actually they sold. None. They're they're useful idiots. Yeah, which is and they are indeed used as okay. foibles in this book. But at the end, yeah. spoiler alert: she she gets shot on the uh, at the wall between East and West Berlin, the Berlin Wall. And what you know, what's that saying? You know, and then Lemus himself, I think, gets shot at the end because he's just seen a shot die and he's just like lost will. He's like, I don't really care anymore. Gets shot himself. So both of these characters there, these useful idiots in a way that which is what they are really for the larger plot of control and you know the circus he's just a schmuck that has to give his life away and ultimately to just to, to complete a mission to protect protect a british agent in one who you know nazi communist bureaucrat though he may be was also london's guy on the inside they have to protect him so they have the useful idiots of lemus and Liz Gold, but both of these useful idiots get shot and i think that's really a big part of the bitterness of the book that that's the, the notes it ends on you know these useful idiots get chewed up and spat out I think that does express a lot of the bitterness that I think Lucari is trying to get across in this book. And I think it really makes you wonder how worth it yeah. was it? You know, is it worth it for Lemus to die for the sake of Munt? Is it worth it for Lemus? And there is a direct discussion of that in the book, that very issue, where innocent people have to die. But what would you prefer? Like this kind of cold war type thing where, yeah, innocent people die, but not that many people die really in these secret service operations so that many lives are actually saved through this so covert spy work in a way. So it's, I don't know, I think there is no way of not getting your hands dirty in the spy business, I think is the point. I think a lot of this book as well, I think is trying to expose the dark truth, the dark methods behind upholding Western ideals, I think is a big thing that this book is trying to bring up. I think that's a big part of its politics is, you know, really almost this sort of like expose you know, the Western methods, because we often hear about the Eastern methods, you know, all the awful things that communists are doing, and that gets compared to Western ideals. Uh, that's the way Control puts it at the beginning of the book. So the problem here is, you know, we, we compare Western ideals with Eastern methods, and what Lucario seems to be getting across in this book is that the Western methods are just as nefarious as the Eastern ones. But whether he's saying that's still a better alternative than full-blown war where hundreds of thousands of people die just for a few innocent people like Lamus and Gold to get killed, I think that's it.
interesting question. I do think the book raises. I can't find the exact quote though. I think that's a really interesting point that they brought up too. And control says, okay, we're talking about two categorically different things. We're talking about methods and ideals. And if our method doesn't align with our ideal, that doesn't matter. We're talking about yeah. methods and ideals. That's how yes. it justifies it. I really like how I love Fiedler. I'm, I'm going to say that right now. Fiedler is, he's such a likable character, even though he's called uh, the torturer. He seems like a Bond villain through the whole book. And you finally meet him and he's just delight. But he talks about how he justifies everything. And he does keep asking Lemus and then Lemus is like, fuck off, Fiedler. And then he keeps asking, what's your philosophy? But when he defines his own philosophy, he goes so far as to say, I myself would put a bomb in a restaurant if it brought us further along the road. He says, I would, yeah. I would tally up how many children died, how many women died. As long as it got us further, yeah. you know, it's worth it. So he thinks that the, the peace and pros the peace and progress that uh, the Communist Party will bring is worth you know however many people you throw away. Mm. Ask him again, what's your philosophy? I think you're just a bunch of bastards. It is it is funny though the portrait he portrays of like you know the, the sort of intellectual Eastern who knows you know the hows and whys of what they're doing. You know you need to surrender yourself to the to the whole. You need to be willing to you you're not allowed to err. You don't have the right to err even. You you must not stop the inevitable march of history. All the while, but also the all the while being sort of silly because it's like you don't seem to see that if well you know it's kind of silly life. If history is so inevitable, why do they have to work so hard? You know, <laughs> that's true. So they don't seem to realize this point. But I think the fact that the Western ha you know guys have nothing to respond with, they're just like, well, we don't really have like a positive vision to put forward to you, and you know, really, we just sort of don't agree with you guys. Yeah. It's weird, and it's interesting that the case is a powerful individual freedom, right? Because you would say that the real thing is. Well, what's the issue with communists is that they surrendered the individual freedom to the collective. We say the opposite. Individual freedom is what we're going for. We just protect individual freedoms. That's our political alignment. There's no real positive argument for that. Like, that's not there. The Western exists purely just because they don't like the communists. So it's, it's weird because the, the book is clearly not pro-communist either. You know, it's, it's clearly quite critical of the communists and their views and regards them as naive and tyrannical in both of the main sort of communist characters. And yet, the West, he's not he's, he's saying the West doesn't put forward in response. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting stance to take. And I, I want to use this opportunity to compare it more to James Bond, especially the first book. The idea of putting forth an idea at the end of the book. Fiedler can say, well, this is why we do things. This is why we do the terrible things that spies do. This is why we have our methods to support these ideals. But there's no positive argument for the American side. Yeah. For the Western side here. Sorry, we're talking about British spies. For the Western side. It's really weird, isn't it? But in James Bond, there is. And it's the exact same conversation Ooh. almost. After James Bond gets tortured and Schmerz has like almost castrated him, he's in the hospital bed, he's talking to his French friend, and he's like, I feel like I'm just playing a, a game that kids play where communists are evil and the West is good. And I can't tell who's good and who's bad anymore. I know now because the guy who was torturing him explained why he's torturing him the whole time. And he basically says, yes, for progress and peace. And James Bond, after almost being killed, he's like, I don't have any purpose as a spy anymore. There is nothing positive I'm putting forward. And his friend says, no, no, you have to do the right thing. And he says, what is the right thing? I can't tell. Eventually, he comes away with saying, all you have to do is protect your friends people that you meet along the way it's not these big ideals mm. so there comes with there's a positive line to end on for james bond and yeah. i think that is the final james bond book that we're going to run into 
where there is a big question about doing the right thing, where he says, what's the point of anything? Good is not real. Evil is not real. Because in the second James Bond book that we read, Live and Let Die, he's fighting an actual evil person. It's a person who's like connected to the devil. It's It becomes supernatural. So the first one's not supernatural at all, yeah. but the second one is like, okay, there is actual evil and they have to use a supernatural weird excuse to do it. So I think James Bond became such a big blockbuster success because it does put something to grasp, yeah. something something positive forward. Yeah. And it's just, it's just very, pre- you know, it's very obvious in its, in its absence. Yeah. And again, it's a bitter book. It's not got much positive said about either side at the end of the day. It's all just politics. Bob, when, when you said the American side and you're like, oh, actually, this is British spice, it, it got me thinking, well, it got me thinking that Le Carre and Fleming are British writers. Hmm. Yeah. And now we've read American writers talking about espionage. Graham Greene being maybe my the, the example that comes to mind first and foremost. Do you think there's a difference between the American presentation of espionage versus the British presentation? espionage you know we we read another spy novel that i'm looking for it's by we read the we read this person's spy novel for the show but this person also wrote a book heart of darkness oh joseph conrad oh Oh, the secret agent conrad secret agent thank you long time sorry that the best i can say about the heart of darkness is you know the one where they go into the jungle (laughs) so he's also he's he's polish british so it seems like the only american author we've we've read Spy stuff is Graham Greene. Interesting. Yeah. I who thought of it as such an exclusively British genre before, but it really is. It might be, yeah. Until very recently. Well, so so then that makes me wonder, like I, I with with Graham Greene stuff, I don't I don't feel it doesn't quite feel like a game in Graham Greene stuff. It feels more like like a scam, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know? No and nothing really works. They're not really effective that anything it's they really do. slapstick yeah it's it's no, kind yeah. of almost like a parody of the british stuff or maybe not parody but at least it relies on your knowledge of how spies work through british espionage literature yeah. in order to make its point i mean i think what's novel about this is it's particularly mundane though yeah it's not glamorous yeah. at all yeah it's not even like slightly glam- like you know an eric ambler where it's sort of like yeah he's drinking a lot of scotch and he's smoking cigarettes but he's probably wearing a suit it's probably quite nice and, you know, he's still jet-setting a little bit. So it's, it's still pretty cool. You'd still trade lives with him. But you wouldn't trade lives with Lee. Yeah, because yeah. he's drinking a bottle of whiskey a day. He's drinking a bottle of whiskey a day. days in a row. He's struggling out there. I like how you guys said the, the high-quality whiskey, wearing nice suits, jet-setting. He's not drinking high-quality You know, he's drinking the oh, he's, he's buying stuff. The cheapest bottle. Yeah, he's got no money. I think there's another difference in spy tropes and the way that they're played. Besides, like the the luxury, there's also one that's really important. I feel like is d- being disguised and pretending to be someone you're not. Lemus is doing that the whole time, mm. but he's doing it as Lemus. Lemus is Lemus in this, and like it's we've said, it's his whole life. When Bond goes in disguise and live and let die, it's comic. He dresses like an American. He can't really do an American accent. It's kind of funny. He complains about his clothes, how bad they look. Yeah, and he claims about how bad Americans' tastes are, and he only has to be in disguise for one day. I yeah. think James Bond is always like one or two days. Lemus is doing this for over a year, being yeah. an alcoholic. He's deep undercover. Yeah, he's deep undercover. We've as seen himself. it in the thirty nines as himself. Lemus plays Lemus. 
we saw it in 39 Steps, too. It's also different. It's just being a good method actor and putting on those disguises really quickly. Yeah, I'm just, I wonder what it would actually be like for a real oh. spy. Is it the full life commitment where you're no longer a person? Or are you just pretending to be someone for a week at a time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess what this book is suggesting is that it's long time. A long yeah. term, sorry. And the only character you really play is you, but on a, on a, on a bad run. Yeah, on a bad run. So that you can get your pension. Yep. You know? Real, real ugly stuff. He's not trying to get a reward here. He's trying to get a pension, right? Like this is not extras. He's really fighting for survival here. Guys, we are pretty much out of time today. John, what's our next book? Is the next Bond book that we need to read? The third Bond book, which I believe is Moonraker. Moonraker by Ian Fleming. Okay, all right. If you're listening along, you know what to to check out from the library next. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating. And if you want to hear even more about The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John Le Carre, subscribe to our Patreon to get access to even more discussion. See you next time.